You unlock this door with the key of imagination. Beyond it is another dimension. A dimension of sound. A dimension of sight. A dimension of mind. You're moving into a land of both shadow and substance, of things and ideas. You've just crossed over into the Twilight Zone. A couple of months ago now, I presented to you an interview that Rod Serling did with Mike Wallace back in 1959, and it's a good way for me to keep the podcast moving, keep it rolling along when life starts to get in the way, and I can't commit to getting episodes out as often as I would like. You've been with me this long, you know how it goes, so I thank you for sticking with me. But I also like to put these things in because we're here because we're interested in Rod Sailing, not just the Twilight Zone, but what he had to say himself. And what was interesting in that interview was it was just before the Twilight Zone started, so Rod Sailing was still quite fresh-faced. He hadn't spent five years toiling away on that show, fighting those battles, writing those many many scripts and really being the creative force behind the whole thing and in that interview he spoke about something i think he called it pre-censorship or something along those lines where he said a writer will often censor themselves before they submit the work or even write the work and the reason they do that is because they know that certain things won't fly on television And while I think Rod Serling was very open and honest in that interview, again, it's only going to go so far because it's on television, it's on primetime television, there's still sponsors to consider. While I don't think he censored himself, I think an interview is only going to go so far under those circumstances. But move time on, six or seven years put him in a different place after he's fought those battles, toiled on the Twilight Zone for five years, and put him in a university where the audience is made up of students who really are ready and willing to soak up whatever he has to say. And that's what I'm going to do for you tonight on the Twilight Zone podcast. I'm going to play for you a speech and then subsequently a Q&A that he did at the University of California, Los Angeles, or UCLA, on the 11th of November, 1966. So the other side of the Twilight Zone, and I'm going to play it in two parts, because it is very long. I'm going to play the speech in one episode, and then I will play the Q&A in the next episode. Now, I realize this isn't going to be for everyone. Some people like to hear about the Twilight Zone exclusively, and... For that, I apologise, those regular episodes will get up and moving when I have the time. But I also think I've got an intelligent audience, and an audience that does like to hear these things occasionally. And like I said, the Twilight Zone podcast isn't about racing to the end of the Twilight Zone. It's sometimes about taking these detours along the way. I'm happy with the Twilight Zone podcast going on as long as it needs to, and... 
most of the time that we'll be looking at the episodes but other times it's going to be taking these diversions looking at something different maybe doing an interview looking at another piece of rod sailing's work or playing an old classic rod sailing interview and that's what i'm going to be doing tonight but i think when you hear this interview the timing is actually quite fitting with what's going on in the world the united states has a new president coming into office a very controversial president england is leaving the european union the world is kind of in turmoil at the moment and a lot of people are thinking that instead of walls coming down walls are starting to go up again so i'll play the first part this time and then the q a next time and then shortly after that we'll be back on track with some regular episodes so submitted for your approval rod sailing speaking at ucla on the 11th of november 1966. good afternoon and welcome it is with great pleasure that the associate student speakers program present this afternoon and welcome to our university mr rod serling after freelancing with radio networks during student days, Mr. Serling turned his attention to television in 1949. His success there is simply a matter of record. Mr. Serling has received six Emmy Awards for Best Dramatic Writing and is the first writer ever to receive the Peabody Award. He is probably best known for the scripts he wrote for original use at the, in the television media, particularly Requiem for a Heavyweight, and Patterns. In 1959, he created, wrote, and produced The Twilight Zone. After Mr. Serling's address, there will be an informal coffee hour next door in the men's lounge. Finally, no introduction of our guest today could be complete without mention of his persistent and vocal arguments for this remaining a tuition-free university. Therefore, I present not a stranger, but a friend, Rod Serling. Thank you very much. I have kind of a low voice, and it strikes me that I'm only hearing myself. Can you hear me in the back of this gigantic room? Can you hear? I, uh... I'm always delighted and indeed honored to be invited to appear at UCLA, not only as uh, a California citizen who is deeply committed and indeed concerned with higher education, but also by virtue of the fact that uh, I'm a neighbor and live only a few minutes away from you. Drop in any time. <laughs> Needless to say, I am conscious and most aware of the recent political turmoil that took place a couple of days ago, and am, needless to say, in addition, somewhat preoccupied by it. The other night, Wednesday night, uh, the night immediately following the catastrophe, uh, <laughs> 
my wife and I happened to attend the Edwin testimonial dinner on behalf of the Parkinson's, Parkinson's disease uh, group, and Bob Crane was the MC. And uh, Bob, incidentally, should you not know it, is a marvelously rich comedian. He's uh, genuinely funny. And he told us a story, apocryphal perhaps, but nonetheless I thought quite humorous, that he had only met Ronnie Regan once in his entire life. And that was when he... Most university campuses that I have occasion to visit provide me with an audience of adults, generally as wise as myself, sometimes wiser, usually better read, and something less than my equal, only in point of longevity. So it follows that it's normally my custom to try to pick a subject in which I might, through dint of experience and exposure, be more knowledgeable than is my audience. And this, of course, would of necessity have to be television, since I've been involved in those vineyards since the very early pioneer days, dating back to 1949. But frankly, television is very much like the weather. Much can be said of it, but very damn little can be done about it. Pat Buttram, I noticed in this morning's paper, said that he loved commercials because at least he knew they wouldn't be interrupted. And lately, I've been doing a bit of reflecting, since professionally I've been what is euphemistically known as in this business as at liberty. Uh, that is to say, not working. Uh, this, of course, is really not the unhappiest state of affairs, because it does give a man a chance to think a little bit, and that's been pretty much the extent of my activities of late. I've had a Broadway play on the market for the better part of the last year, and I've been sort of waiting in limbo to see if anyone would buy it. Uh, as a matter of fact, it does give me an opportunity to watch television on occasion, and I depart from these prepared comments only to share with you the experience that I've had the past six months of watching daytime television, and uh, an experience which up to six months ago had been denied me. Uh, and I've been quite taken with the nature of the television commercials uh, not to say appalled, and there's a woman who runs around on your little cathode tube whose name is Katie Winters. Now, Katie Winters has a unique uh, place in the escutcheon of our social order because all her friends, 1,900 of them, have underarm perspiration problems. Then I note with interest a commercial uh, of a rental car in which a guy jumps off of a nine-story building and lands headlong into an automobile. And uh, I believe that if on one errant occasion he chances to land on a stick shift, uh, he will then know what is the meaning of Hertz. Uh, <laughs> these unquestionably are the jokes. Uh, as a matter of fact, in addition, uh, we had a census taker at my home not too long ago, and my 14-year-old daughter greeted him at the door, and he asked her what her father did, or currently was doing, for a living. And without batting an eye, this kid, who I'm sure will ultimately wind up writing for Bob Hope ten years hence, announced to him that Daddy was engaging in his latest hobby, he was lying in the hammock and letting the birds watch him. 
Well, actually, as of November the 9th, I haven't been lying in a hammock exactly. I've been pretty much on the floor uh, in a state of shock, as have many of my liberal colleagues. So I'm afraid I really can't apply myself to the banalities of either television uh, or the proscenium in terms of drama or the printed page. Rather, what I'd like to talk to you about today has to do with certain reflections made over the past 48 hours as a consequence of our recent national and state balloting, and as really a reflection of what are some thoughts of my own apropos of the State of the Union, the predilections of the electorate, and some of the issues that so beat the hell out of most liberals uh, last Tuesday. And I can think of really no better place to talk politically than a college campus. It strikes me that you college students are perhaps the most politically oriented species of Americans who exist. And whereas college campuses are perhaps the last places on earth a man should go with political opinions nowadays, I do so with some temerity because on the basis of the size of the honorarium you've given me, I really have no obligation to ingratiate any of you. So what follows are things that are near and sometimes dear to my heart. Some observations about current morality, a couple of asides about what are the things that buoy up my hopes, and conversely, what are some of the things that make me bleed to death. First of all, there's this business of the so-called white backlash and the preoccupation we've seen with the riots in various parts of our country. I suppose if we were to semantically search for a definition of white backlash, we might say that it's simply a self-righteous majority taking a most unrighteous position. And this position is found on two polarized points of the spectrum of race relations. There are the militant whites who look at a rioting Negro and who sagely make the philosophical point that this proves what they've been saying all along, that the Negroes were somehow a lesser breed of cat who could not be trusted with either political freedom, economic opportunity, or the prerogatives that go along with citizenship. And as a corollary to that, they point a warning finger or fist, depending on the region, to the Negro. And they tell him that that's it. The law-abiding, God-fearing, patriotic white American will not countenance the looting and rampage and violence of these marching blacks. And that from now on, that brief and illusory honeymoon that took place in Washington, D.C. in 1964 is over. Now we revert to type. Now we re-embrace those fundamentals that have always been the touchstone of both politics and race relations over the years. The white man is the boss. The black man is a second-rate addenda on the scene, and he forever shall be precisely that. And leave us not here any more cries for equality, because that equality, too, has been forfeited by the specter of black power and the irresponsibility that that phrase connotes. Now, on the other end of the spectrum, we have the parlor liberal, the essentially decent and well-motivated humanitarian who shakes his head and clucks and feels miserable that 1% of the Negro population has taken to the streets. And he waggles a finger at his Negro brethren, and he says, slow, man, slow, cool it for a while. 
Soften your voices. Ease up on your demands. Turn off the Klieg lights and crawl into the shadows. The essential thing now is to allow the frightened white majority time to recast you in your more subservient role, to which the white has become most accustomed and feels most comfortable in. Now this is the so-called white backlash. And north of the Mason-Dixon line, you don't hear a candidate use that expression. Out here in California, it somehow enters the body politic with a backdoor injection into a vein. And it comes at us via the innuendo and the wise wink. We heard it from the proponents of Proposition 16, who tried to pass the so-called anti-obscenity law. And on the radio, you very likely heard the spot announcements, in which it was pointed out that decent, law-abiding men and women had rights too, and that that included the right of their children to lead a reasonably sheltered and protected life during their formative years, free of salacious literature. But perched on top of the sobriquet, quote, decent, law-abiding, unquote, was Jim Crow, plain, simple, and ugly. By decent, law-abiding men and women, they meant white, decent, law-abiding men and women. The inference and the innuendo were very clear. Hey, Mac, they were nudging us. You know what we mean, Mac? We're fighting for the right kind of people. Then the wink again. The white kind of people. Know what we mean, Mac? And in point of fact, putting referendums on ballots, like Proposition 16 and like Proposition 14, which repealed the Rumford Act, were instances of white backlash at its most vicious, virulent, hate-fostering best. It was the shrill and discordant voices of that segment of our society who are altogether willing to honor law and acknowledge justice and indeed embrace morality, but only their brand of all three. And if the law and the lawmakers do not subscribe to their points of view, then we move into the, quote, impeach Earl Warren, unquote, syndrome, in which we are told to throw the rascals out and throw the laws out as well. So desperately afraid are these people of any kind of centralized government, and you hear them bemoan this menacing democratic phenomena constantly. It's odd how quick and how vibrant they are when it comes to a few good federal laws of their own making and their own devices. Well, I believe when we talk of law or justice or morality, we're going to have to consign the so-called white backlash to its proper place. And that would have to be in a city dump someplace outside of Pomona. To the men who say that the Negro has no right to riot and no right to pillage and no right to loot, we must acknowledge that he's right. But let us at the same time make this an all-inclusive attitude and let it apply to all men who would loot and pillage and burn. Let it apply to any and all overt attempts to subvert law and order. Let it, for example, apply to the 6,000-odd lynchings that have taken place against the Negro race between the middle 19th century and 1939. 6,000 recorded lynchings, that is. God knows how many took place that did not find their way into historical statistics. And let us not make this morality of ours so selective as to color. While we talk of Watts and Atlanta and Berkeley and Cleveland, Ohio, let's remember the bomb placed in the Selma, Alabama church 
And this was not the act of passion that makes hopeless, anguished people throw bricks in store windows. It was a cold, calculated, predatory, and logistically ordered act of hating men who projected their hate and gave it form to take the lives of six innocent Negro kids. Of the two, a mob that races through a ghetto on a hot summer night, or the white man who so carefully plans the taking of human lives, I'm hard-pressed to decide which is the most immoral. But my tendencies are to be much more sympathetic to the marchers than the murderers. What I'm trying to say here is that no one has seen fit to challenge the rights of Italian-Americans because there happens to be a Cosa Nostra around, and nobody has entertained the thought of disenfranchising the Southern white because he has a history of violence against the Negro that is as regular as it is appalling. And I saw no public outcry at retaining Texas as a state in the Union when on a November day a young president of the United States was shot down in the streets and those streets were lined with placards supplied by the Dallas Birch Society, which said, wanted for treason, JFK. It's incredible, this selective morality, which would disenfranchise the Negro because of the 1% who violate the law, and yet ascribe no such racial stigma to the white man, who's been doing far worse for a hell of a lot longer time. It makes no sense, and it serves no purpose. Now as to the other end of the spectrum, which is my end of the spectrum, because I've fallen prey to this myself, the emotional reaction to what happened in Oakland and everywhere else. I instinctively hold up my hands and I turn to my Negro friends who are legion, and I say, for God's sakes, cool it. Will you slow down? Don't ask for your rights so stridently or so continuously or so demandingly. You're hurting your own cause. Now this is specious, and it is without logic. And above all, it is without justice. Who are we, any of us, to tell the Negro to slow down in his demands for the things which are his due, his right, his legacy? Who are we to hold out equality in employment, and equality in education, and equality in living conditions, like a kind of a small country club golf trophy, and say, you'll get it in good time, or you'll get it if you're a good boy, or you'll get it if you're more deferential, or perhaps less noisy about it. In all truth, these are rights which properly are not ours to give. They already exist. They're a matter of record. The truth is that all this equality belongs to the Negro. We've simply not given it to him. We have not extended it to him. We never really made it a matter of record that by everything right and holy it's his to begin with. I frankly think we've run out of alternatives now. Either we ultimately must face the fact that we're going to have to live side by side with our neighbors, or we're going to have to carve this land up into ghetto gradations. There isn't a middle ground anymore. And so long as we deny anything to anyone, there will be more Watts, and more Atlantis, and more Harlems, and more of everything else. There isn't a racial group, or a political party, or a national entity who historically will not ultimately take to the streets when they are denied so long and too long what belongs to them. I'm not condoning the breaking of store windows, or the burning of buildings, or the destruction of property. 
There's no question but that it does hurt the cause. There's no question but that it damages the image of our Negro citizen. I wish to hell they wouldn't march. I wish to hell they'd make it easy for us liberals to be and be patient, if not acquiescent, all the time. But everything inside me that has to do with principle and honor and ethics dictate that I not turn my back on the legitimate aspirations of a people because they run out of patience and run out of acquiescence. Crime in the streets is one thing, but the prolonged continuous crime of the denial of freedom is a more costly and a much more serious departure from justice. Some years ago, when Proposition 14 was first put on the ballot as a public referendum, the so-called open housing clause, I suddenly became acquainted with what are the very special hungers of our California electorate. It seems that on the spectrum of public concern, the right of property carries with it the most import and the most sacred and deified concern. A man, so they tell us, should have the right to dispose of his property in whatever manner he sees fit and to whomsoever he wants to sell it to or give it to or lend it to or rent it to, the right of property. This I was told by men and women who were not rightists or extremists of any kind, but they clutched to this concept as if it were absolutely celestial in origin. I'm not a lawyer. I have only a layman's knowledge and interest in constitutional prerogatives, and I'll admit to a certain emotional stance in my reaction to this. But I must tell you that I think the preeminent dignity of the human being should be a matter of far more import and should be an object of much deeper concern than is the right to sell property. Again, as in the case of white backlash, our real estate people out here will never say that to be against the Rumford Act is suggestive of any prejudice. As a matter of fact, they protest far too much in this regard. Oh, no, they'll tell us there's nothing anti-Negro in this, nothing anti-Semitic, nothing anti-accidental. This happens to be freedom in its purest form, freedom of property and the freedom to dispose of that property. Now, in theory, I suppose they can boast some constitutional precedents. But realistically, Proposition 14 was a blatant and predatory and overt acknowledgement of prejudice. I must speak emotionally now because this deals with emotions and the most basic emotions. I note that 23% of the fatalities in Vietnam are colored soldiers, a percentage, incidentally, which is as totally overlooked in terms of its incredible size as is the smallness of the 1% who riot. But I wonder what this man feels, this Negro soldier, when he knows that whereas he has an obligation to wear the uniform and to die in extravagant numbers, far disproportionate to the Negro population, I wonder if he ever becomes preoccupied in the realization that the cause that he fights for, according to our rights-conscious white brethren, will deny him the housing of his choice. They will deny him. They will quote statutes to him and the Constitution to him and certain God-given rights that have to do with property. This they'll quote to him. But they will, with the benefit of law, quite legally, consign him to a ghetto for the rest of his life no matter his sacrifices and no matter in what numbers he has to die. I don't deny that property rights are of the essence, but I submit to you that there are other rights perhaps less clear 
that transcend the house and some plaster and so many square feet of yard. These have to do with the rights of men to live where they want, to live where they can afford to, and to live without jeopardy. I sometimes am bemused by the so-called new left that I run up against on campuses. I'm bemused because I'm accustomed to the political right wing disliking me with great cordiality. This has been the case over the years, and I'm accustomed to it. But when young men and women whose attitudes and motives are closer to my own start to wave banners in my face, this becomes a little unnerving. Because I'd always thought we were kind of on the same team. It appears on occasion that we play in the same league, but we're not on the same team. These very liberally oriented students disdain both me and the Birch Society. They slough us off with a kind of plague-on-both-your-houses approach. They rarely, however, supply blueprints for a particular house of their own. They love to take belts at existing authority, rejecting it, ridiculing it, tearing it to pieces. But I've yet to see any alternatives beyond sloganry and beyond their passion. They make an exceptionally strong case for academic freedom, but they do so almost in the abstract. They do not take the next step in the natural progression of logic and tell us academic freedom for what, or to do what, or to accomplish what. They cry out for democracy and indeed the democratic process, but they do so while embracing a strangely anarchistic approach that is the antithesis of the democratic process. But I will say this. I would much prefer, repeat, much prefer, some bearded marchers and a few exponents of dirty words and a loud vocal group of dissenters, no matter the cause, to what were the extracurricular functions of most college students during my undergraduate days. In the halcyon pre-war time, college students went all out for relatively major causes like eating goldfish alive, raiding panties in girls' dormitories, or packing themselves into phone booths 76 at a time to see who'd remain unasphyxiated. <coughs> Let me suggest that these all-out probes of my time into the social ills of the world were a whole hell of a lot less inspired than are the commitments of your generation, be you on the left or the right. So in point of fact, I care less that you're somewhat disorganized on occasion and somewhat directionless in your causes, so long as you embrace causes and commit to causes and involve yourselves in causes. I fault you really not in that you're so devoid of alternatives, but simply because all this marvelous energy of yours, all of this unparalleled enthusiasm, might possibly be put to better and more thoughtful and more resultant uses. But even so, God help us if your voices are stifled, if your thought processes are dulled, if the courage it takes for you to take unpopular positions is somehow jeopardized. The salvation of this country, and indeed the salvation of the institutions that we hold precious and basic, is dependent on your capacity to make your commitments and to bespeak them. And since this is kind of a department store potpourri of thought, let me make mention of one of the major issues on the Ohio State campus a few years ago, which under this new administration 
might well be a problem here. The business of communist speakers, or indeed any kind of politically suspect lecturers appearing on publicly supported campuses. I've always felt that the denial of a platform to even the most rabid of enemies is somehow a tacit admission that the point of view espoused by that enemy carries with it some weight of logic that we must be fearful of, if indeed his voice has to be stifled by an official directive. I seriously doubt if a communist or a Nazi could come up with so winning a collection of fact and opinion that he would make any substantial inroads on a college audience. But once you deny him that platform, there is most assuredly an innate suggestion that he is to be feared because of his logic and because of the positions he takes. And I don't believe this is the case. My guess is rather that most ideologies that call for omnipotent governments and monolithic governing structures are by their nature an anathema to those of us who respect freedom. And because I like to put my money where my mouth is, I would extend that freedom of this platform to almost anyone, so long as he didn't yell fire in the crowded theater. And I suppose this would pretty much run the gamut of the kookiest of political thought in this country, practically down to Rockwell and his Nazis as well. Let them speak. Let's hear what they say. Usually I find that they damn themselves. And now that I've bespoken of evils and ills and wrongdoings and injustices, let me close by offering not the universal cathartic that will somehow cure us all, but let me suggest that whereas this is not the best of all possible worlds, its potential remains quite intact. And I think this potential stems from the very thing we've been discussing, the business of talking out, of dissenting, of arguing, and rebutting. That's the universal language, speech, dialogue, communication. Therein lies the hope, communication. That's the highway between men's minds that guarantee as long as men talk, they will not fight. And as long as they do not fight, they survive. So I would leave you with this thought. Don't stop talking. And don't stop thinking. And don't, for God's sake, stop arguing. There's an apocryphal story they tell that shortly after Samuel Morse laid the first transatlantic cable, he delivered a message to the continent of Europe from New York City. And an excited student rushed into a crowded eastern classroom, and he shouted at the top of his lungs that Samuel B. Morse had just talked to Europe over the cable. And there was a general commotion, full of cheering and applause and back-pounding, and an elderly white Maine professor who had remained quietly observant of the scene looked up and said very softly, What did he say? And this is of the essence. What do we say? This and the fact that we keep saying. We keep talking. We keep arguing. We keep espousing our own causes. On a given election day of a given year or even a given century, this may seem to be on the face of a divisive. But over the long haul, and when I say long haul, I mean the ultimate destiny of this country and this earth, no people, no race, no country, and no civilization ever died from too much talk, too much divided opinion, too many variances of view. Thank you very much.